Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series, presented by TELUS. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. This show is brought to you by Métis Nation BC, TELUS, and Jelly Marketing. That last name translates to pig-headed or stubborn. Um, I was saying that's kind of the epiphany of resilience, I guess. Mm. Um, my father was Machif Métis, um, Cree and Lakota from... Um, from Manitoba, from an area uh, called St. Eustache, which is uh, just uh, north of Eli, uh, west of Winnipeg. Um, it's a very large, very old Métis community. Mm. Um, he was born dirt farm uh, during, he was born in 1916, uh, had 17 brothers and sisters, wow. which is pretty typical of Métis family. You just keep having them. And, um, 21 in his cousin's family that lived next door, 21 kids. Um, yeah, so he attended um, St. Francis Xavier Catholic School, which was a residential school, but they called it a Catholic school. Um, as a day student, he attended until he was uh, grade four. Mm -hmm. Then he um, never really spoke of it much, but mm -hmm. he told me, it was a very terrible time for him, and uh, he got out of there as soon as he could. Um, his grandfather let him quit working at that age, or quit school at that age, mm -hmm. um, and he got a job working. Uh, he lived in Winnipeg till, uh, up until the 50s, and he moved to Millardville, mm -hmm. uh, which is where all the dark-skinned Frenchmen live. Mm -hmm. uh, he moved to escape... Um, being Métis mm. and having his children go to residential school. Mm. And we he moved to Millardville, where I was born. Mm. Uh, and then from there, we moved out to Hatsik, which mm. is just uh, just east of Mission. And uh, we moved in right into an old farm community, which surrounded uh, St. Mary's Residential School. Okay. So um, I attended Hatsik Elementary for a year. Uh, and uh, then they had an influx of children coming in, new subdivisions being built. Uh, they sold off a lot of the other farms around us, and uh, they um, closed my little one-room schoolhouse for a year, and they sent us all over to a handful of white kids over to St. Mary's uh, Residential School to attend there as day students. Mm. So um, even though we had a, a white teacher um, and uh, we had segregated, um, they had the priests and nuns teaching the, the indigenous children and I attended with the white children mm -hmm. um, and a white teacher, just a regular 
just a regular lady. Um, we shared recess and lunch mm-hmm. with them on the school grounds. And I had a, I had to go from the classroom out into the field and back and forth where I had a priest that used to pick me out of the, out of the hallway. So I've got a bit of an aversion to crowds for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, used to grab me out of the crowd and pull me into the classroom that was being used and close the door. So I um, have that pretty standard um, jack-in-the-box thing that many childhood trauma people have. Um, always kind of waiting for something to go wrong, waiting for the other side of the coin or the other shoe to drop, so yeah. to speak. Um, I, um, I spent a, a year there and then moved over back to my regular schoolhouse uh, where we had a maniac of a principal um, who would read a scripture and used to grab me by the hair and throw me across the room um, into filing cabinets and such. Uh, broke my broke my finger and, and finally my dad came in and said, that's enough. And he said, if you touch my son again, I'll mm-hmm. kill you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the end of the abuse after mm-hmm. that. Um, and I kind of put that stuff aside my whole life. Um, you know, the emotional, spiritual, uh, and uh, mental and, and physical abuse from from my year at St. Mary's. And uh, just that was kind of the Métis way is you just put that stuff aside and move on. Mm. So you just forget about it, move on. And uh, you just put so much of that stuff under a tarp and you just keep burying it. And soon it starts to sing, stink and the tarp doesn't fit anymore. It starts to affect yeah. you, you know, burns your eyes and your lungs. Yeah. And um, I started having, uh, I was... I've been tradesman most of my life, mm-hmm. floated from job to job. It affected me greatly, <clears throat> definitely affected my, my self-worth and my trust mm-hmm. and confidence in myself. And I never felt that I was worthy of uh, or could be trusted with a family and children. And uh, you know, I definitely avoided that. Um, it took took a lot for me that I realize now I have a uh, definitely a aversion to being hugged. Mm. Uh, or held it's very hard for me um especially if it's somebody comes to hug me from behind or something mm. i just about jump out of my skin um even 50 years later mm. um but uh, about five six years ago uh, i was a tradesman all my life like i said i floated around from job to job concrete upholstery, uh, framing, drywall, uh, finish carpentry, mm-hmm. heating, cooling, did all these things and none of them enough to um, go into the trade. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I applied for maintenance manager because uh, I knew a little bit of everything and, mm-hmm. and uh, went from there um, and started kind of, I started in the hotel industry mm-hmm. and then moved over to the retirement industry. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> was doing very successful, yeah. a nice paying job. Uh, I was in charge of two very large medical facilities. Amazing. Uh, everything there, but I had no support below me or above mm-hmm. me and I started to crumble and I started to get very stressed and mm-hmm. I was getting angry and started kind of just, oh, it's this and it's that. And, you know, it's the fact that this guy at work and this, and this guy cut me off in traffic and that's why I'm mad. And <clears throat> I'd always had sudden anger, but this was building up, building up. Mm. It was, the resentment was killing me. 
And uh, I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized it was, it's childhood stuff. Mm-hmm. I went to see a psychologist mm-hmm. and uh, started digging a little bit. And I realized, wow, I'm very sensitive about, about, you know, certain things. And so I took time off work. Um, lucky I was union and they supported me taking time off work um, for mental health growth and healing. Um, and I was having a lot of anxiety attacks and bad depression. Um, so I went in and started taking depression, um, a depression group. Mm-hmm. And then I took uh, other courses. I took anger management because mm-hmm. I knew that was definitely a thing. Um, and then after that, I took courses on anxiety. <clears throat> I took a course on um on time management and, and procrastination, all that stuff. And after I was done all that, I realized, oh, it all goes back to self-esteem, right? Mm-hmm. It's, that's what it takes from us, our self-esteem and our trust. And, and so I started studying those and uh, getting consuming everything I could. Um, and to advocate myself for mm-hmm. myself, I started taking uh, peer support worker and recovery support worker mm-hmm. courses for mental health and addiction mm-hmm. and became a Fraser Health uh, certified worker. Wow. So I realized I was really good at it. Yeah. I had so much life experience to <laughs> yeah. reflect on and relate yeah. it to. And and uh, every little situation that I'd been through all seemed kind of meaningless and needless yeah. until kind of it all clicked that this is my education. Wow. This is yeah. where, you know, I've been here to gather this information. And if I reflect on this, this is what I learned here. This is what I learned there. Mm. This is what I take from this and that. Yeah. I have a choice to take anger, resentment. Yeah. I have a choice to take, you know, like all of us, we always yeah. have a choice. It yeah. may not seem like it, yeah. but we always do, right? Wow. And I choose to use this for wise. Mm. It's easy to get lost in and I've done that for 40 years, mm. 50 years. So I choose now to look at things differently. I choose to look at it for a purpose. It's, it's hard to look back, but it's vital to reflect. It's, uh, we got to recognize our scars and own our truths inside yeah. first if we go anywhere. And it really all comes back to acceptance and forgiveness. Yeah. So we own, once we own our stuff and then we have that acceptance and, and we forgive ourselves mostly because I had to forgive myself for being weak, for not telling others, for, yeah. you know, for maybe not telling others and making it stop. And maybe others had the same experiences. And, um, a lot of guilt, <clears throat> excuse me. A lot of guilt and uh, a lot of shame. Hmm. So I learned that guilt is the feeling of of doing something wrong, and shame is the feeling of being something wrong. Hmm. And that's that's I had that feeling for hmm. so long, and just couldn't you know I couldn't find worth. I couldn't find the trust to have a family and and hold a really good job for yeah. very long. And and I worked on a you know I I worked on more of a, a scale of emotional logic rather than logical emotion so i had that that emotional logic mm. well you know i'm entitled to that yeah. or you know if you hadn't done that i wouldn't have done this and yeah i had that resentment and yeah. I, I i have the right to be resentful you yeah. know yeah you do but like you gotta have a choice to kind of let it go and forgive yeah. that you know and understand that you're holding mm. that burning ember waiting to throw it that yeah. it's, it's burning your hand right? yeah. um, speaking of which i one of the things that i had was uh the, the the nun that ran the hallway in mm. school in the schoolyard used to take a, a yardstick and grow put our hands out they go across our hands and now finally starting to recover from from childhood PTSD and that kind of stuff that 
My hands are all full of scar tissue now from it. They're all, this will be my third. I'm just heading into my third operation for that scar tissue. So, yeah, I'm a musician, um, self-taught. I um, worry a little bit each time that I'm not going to be able to play different things. Um, Yeah, I'm a flute maker. I've had an amazing life. I've been a bingo caller. I've... I ran snowcat at ski hills. I've uh, been a chimney sweep. I've like an uh, actual chimney sweep. Absolutely, yes. Did you, ever yeah, sing I traveled. The, did you sing the song? I one? did, yes. Yeah, yeah. Joking around. Chim- I used to chimney, do the chim- chim- chimney, chimney thing. You yeah. bet. Yeah. yeah, I traveled all over BC. I took all the wet uh, wood energy technical yeah. training yeah. courses and yeah. stuff. Uh, Kelowna, yeah. the island, all over the place. <gasps> took all the courses for inspection, installation, yeah. and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, service. And, Sales and uh, yeah, and uh, learned a lot of the a lot of science with it. Of course, um, had an amazing life. Mm-hmm. I right out of the gate as a kid, I commercial fished Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've traveled all over BC, Western Canada mostly. I had older parents. My dad, typical Métis, was fifty mm-hmm. when when I was born. And uh, his dad was fifty three when he was born. Wow! Yeah, so it's like it's. Pretty typical yeah. that an old guy marries a young young woman and has kids, right? Yeah. So he was fifty when I was born, and uh, he um, he had had kind of the same life. He had mm. had that traveled all over. I never yeah. I never went too far though because I always knew that they were going to get old and I needed yeah. to kind of be around to help them. Yeah. So I'd go away on an adventure and make sure yeah. I always came back to yeah. my home base. Wow. So yeah, it's. Um, I have been a, a lodge keeper at uh, at uh, our Métis Sweat Lodge years yeah. and years ago. Um, Where was that? Where was the lodge? That was in Mission. Um, right. Does it still exist? No, it's gone. Okay. I, w- I want to put another one in. Um, I'm just tr- going to try and work with MNBC to build a lodge on, on my property where I'm at yeah. now because I have the blessing of the band to do that. And, How big does it need to be? Uh, I'm hoping to make it about... Uh, 12 to 16 people, okay. which would be about the size of this room, really. Yeah. And we could all kind of just sit and, in a circle. Yeah, in yeah. lotus style position all yeah. the way around, and then rocks in the center with a basic. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I built a couple. Um, um, when I first was kind of going through depression, uh, my dad was older. He was uh, starting to pass, he mm. was struggling with dementia from Parkinson's. I was his caregiver, mm. uh, really tore it out of me, and uh, I started going to, um, you know, look for help. And I went to a caregiver's depression support group. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of helping a lot, you know, just to see others were yeah. struggling too and yeah. kind of how they coped with it. But nobody was really relatable. And, and yeah. my childhood traumas, I think, were still picking up my neck yeah. like a crow kind of yeah. thing, right? And uh, so I, somebody said, why don't you go to Sweat Lodge? And I was like, well, well we got a Métis Sweat Lodge. You should go. And I hadn't really been in with the Métis Association yet. And I yeah. was like, yeah, you know, I don't look indigenous. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not, you know, and, and uh, I had a lot of that shame, right, that uh, I can't self-esteem. Uh, I'm not going to be accepted. And then they're like, no, I should go. And I was like, oh, I got tattoos and yeah. stuff. And nobody had tattoos at that time. This is 30-some years ago. And, uh, and I had a pot leaf and a few other things. And they're like... And I said, oh, I don't know. And so when I got there, everybody starts taking their shirts yeah. off. And 
and and the lodge keeper says, "Hi, I'm you know how are you?" and blah blah blah, and introduced himself, and so I was like, oh, I looked around, everybody took their shirts yeah. off, and I thought, oh man, here comes the judgment, yeah, and yeah. I took my shirt off, and the lodge keeper right away said, "Love your tattoos," oh, and that was it. That was the acceptance that I needed to kind of start to heal yeah. through there. And, uh, it was just that that atmosphere that we need, right? Yeah. We need that safe, comfortable yeah. environment that accepts us and supports us and understands us. Yeah. So that uh, always rang big in my mind, um, you know, that uh, now I work as a, a peer support worker yeah. and recovery support worker for yeah. mental health and addictions. Worked in a clubhouse for a while doing a, um, uh, they called it community kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I would bring people in um, and they, a lot of them were institutionalized or yeah. they'd been out of marriages where the wife had cooked for them or mom or whoever, you yeah. know. And um, so I was teaching them to cook and, sure. and, and what's better for mental health than cooking or sitting yeah. around a fire, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just so primitive sharing food and, yeah. and having that bond and right away it's trust. It's, oh. it's a, it's an incredible atmosphere. Yeah. So right away we're all working together for the greater good of sharing this meal. So everybody just shares immediately Amazing. and people just crack right open yeah. with food. Right. And so, wow. And they and they don't filter it as much. They, yeah. It's honest, it's honest yeah. reactions and honest statements. So, That's really cool. Yeah. So it's it was a really good program. COVID changed that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course. Yeah. Um, kind of back on the look, trying to figure out where I fit in on my niche for um, for maybe working as a young elder. Yeah. Again, I kind of wrestled that because yeah. I don't have that instant credibility as a as a you know residential school survivor or. So, you know, as an elder for sure, or even indigenous really, right? So um, living on reserve, there's a lot of dark skin First Nations around me that I definitely don't have that instant credibility until maybe I share my story if I do. So then it's a little more accepted. Residential school was uh, something else. It was... uh, even after my abuse, I still stayed close by. I still hung out at the school, wow. <clears throat> even though I was bullied by, you know, I was a white kid, yeah. you know, in, 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 a, in a residential school, right? Yeah. So I got bullied brutal. I mean, they hated white people. Yeah. Or they thought it was white people put them there, not government or, yeah. you know, religion. or it was, it was white people, so they hated white people. Um, but my mom and dad were sympathetic. They... They understood, and they had, uh, for a lot of times, I had eight First Nations foster brothers and, mm. and uh, growing up, um, all from up high to Gwaii, Prince yeah. Rupert Terrace, all different places. Mm. Um, so one of the things that's not talked about is a lot of, like, living next door to the residential school, I saw it firsthand. And it was, um, but from a bystander point of view, which gives me a different, look at things i guess um a lot of the kids that were brought there they were brought from their village Mm -hmm. by boat out here and then they took a ferry to here and then they flew them Mm -hmm. down into the valley as small children and a lot of the families had four or five kids Mm -hmm. three kids and uh so now come christmas the kids want to go home and the family couldn't afford it. And one of the things was, if you bring your family home, it's yeah. your responsibility to bring them home, oh. pay for them to get home, and your responsibility to send them back on time. And if you don't send them back on time, the family would be punished. Hmm. 
So and fined heavily. I mean, yeah. they had no money, etc. And yeah. it, nobody would give them jobs yeah. or anything else. And uh, so a lot of those kids that I that I knew from the residential school, they were my friends and and co students. They didn't go home for twelve years. Wow. So when they finally did go home. If they ever did, because yeah. the shame was so great and the trust issues, yeah. you know, and, and maybe there was intergenerational abuse back there because monkey see, monkey do, of course, right? And so if somebody's abused, a lot of times they'll pass it on, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, if they did go back home, it was an uncomfortable atmosphere. Either they weren't trusted or they couldn't trust themselves or they couldn't trust others. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, they'd either go there, realize they don't fit in, they're amongst strangers, and they'd leave. And where do you go? Go back to the evil you know, right? Yeah. So they go back to mission if they ever left yeah. mission. So even, you know, almost 50 years later, 45 years later, I still drive down my main street of where I grew up, and I still see the kids that I went to school with on the street, homeless and Today. broken. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is yeah. the school All still nations. there? The school's still there. I drive by it every day. Is it operational or is it? It's uh, not torn down. Okay. It's, uh, it's semi-operational. They use it for daycare. Okay. And they use it for, uh, I believe they use it for a little bit for administration on different things. But uh, yeah, it's, it's still there. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that does my heart good is I know that um, St. Mary's was built uh, down on the water originally, and then they realized they needed a bigger school, so mm. they put it up top and built it. And then in the 60s, they moved the school over here and built a bigger one and moved everybody over. And these buildings were torn down um, burned, and they used a lot of the materials and stuff, but they left all the foundations, and they had an old cemetery there, and uh, they let everything grow up and blackberries all around it and except this cemetery for the priests and nuns uh, it was all marked very fancy graves and stuff and headstones um, but there was another row of graves there they were all just crosses and nobody ever talked about them or anything but the blackberries have all consumed it and the city made that whole acreage a park so there would never be any excavation done there there would never be any ground turned and anything found so it's all just overgrown with blackberries and it's all but uh, now it's they had to give up the rights to do the groundbreaking radar and stuff so it it warms my heart those children will be found Hmm. that's right in your backyard yeah yeah i used to play there as a kid so even in the 70s early 70s i attended in 74 and even then come to school and someone would be missing and they'd say that they ran away in the night and they drowned in the river or whatever would have happened that uh, they went home or some similar BS story. So I know that there's going to be a staggering amount of graves there. That school ran for over a hundred years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I am. I was very dear friends with the, the boy that lived on the property. His father was caretaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and his family was given a small house on the property. Um, I think partly because he had a little bit of political clout mm-hmm. to the fact that his mother, um, her father was Chief Dan George. Okay. 
So he was always there when I was when I was a kid. He was in his later years. Um, spent him in the house. He was always around. And I think they kind of got a little bit of special privileges just because of that. So they got this little tiny house, and they had six, seven children uh, and themselves living in this little two-bedroom house, basically. And it was very small, but they didn't have to have their kids inside the residentials going on yeah. with them, right? Um, I hung out with him. He was my best friend then. And uh, hung out at the residential school all the time. Um, St. Mary's had a marching band. One of the first ones started in the 1800s. Wow. Um, and uh, they used to play halftime shows yep. at the Whitecaps game and Lions right. and stuff. Yeah. So I used to go in with them uh, to go and watch and travel with them and stuff. Um, my buddy's little sister, First Nations uh, family, his little sister um, ended up getting a job on the Beachcombers. Do you remember the Beachcombers? No. Yeah, the Beachcombers was a Canadian series they filmed up in Gibson. Okay. So on my mother's side, my yeah. great-great-grandfather was George Gibson. Okay. So my grandparents had a place right behind Molly's Reach, right on the water. Uh, and I used to go up there and spend time there as a kid. Yeah, yeah. So I'd sit and watch them film this yeah. TV series. It's a pretty, pretty national icon, iconic series. Um, and uh, so I'd go up there and watch that. His little sister was... Uh, she played one of the characters on the show. Okay. So we, I travel yeah. up with him as well and with his family and we watch. Wow. And that was some great memories. So some great memories, yeah. you know, and uh, it was really hard to figure out how to balance that without yeah. feeling that guilt about, you know, um, there was some joy there for me as well. Yeah. You know, it was uh, a teeter-totter for sure of yeah. all or nothing thinking with it. And yeah. like everything, it's about learning to live with moderation rather yeah. than absolution. Yeah. And uh, I've had to kind of figure that out with, you know, with most things in life. Yeah. And, and uh, as, a, as a counselor now, as a support worker and uh, kind of emotions coach, spiritual coach, I kind of try and present that to people, not to think in terms of absolution, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, you have a, uh, you know, you might be a, a drinker and you have a couple of drinks, it winds you down and, oh, that's so nice cold beer after mowing the lawn mm. and a big hard day and you just want to sit and have a cold beer and relax with your friends yeah, yeah. and stuff. But I know it turns into this and that. It goes yeah. to the extreme every time, right? So it's, you know, I don't want to give up drinking. I like it. You know, I, it's, it's a distraction is what it is. So yeah. if we figure out, and I try and teach that if we can figure out why we need that distraction, why that wellness tool has become a coping mechanism, yeah, yeah. then we can probably learn to regulate it and moderate yeah. it again and have that back in our life one yeah. day. So we have a little light on the horizon. Yeah. Like, and, you know, yeah, you can maybe go into the casino and spend 20 bucks with your buddy yeah. and make a night of it at the, the penny machines and you don't have to spend all your life savings. Yeah. Right? You have that moderation and that that logical emotion rather than emotional logic, right? Yeah. Oh, what the hell? I might as well get rid of it all now, you know? Yeah. It's like uh, I explained it as going in to buy a pack of, like if you're a cigarette smoker, do you stop the car? Do you go in the store? Do you buy the pack of cigarettes? Do you bring it out? Do you unwrap it? Do you take one out? Do you light it? Like yeah. where do you draw the, you know, are you suddenly a smoker again because you smoked a, a little bit or stopped at the store or smoked a half pack? Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, where do you... We always have that choice to go one way or the other, right? Yeah. And we can always, we always want to go back to our shame when we're yeah. a childhood trauma survivor. And uh, that's, that's, I've, I've not been able to heal from being 
residential school survivor still in my heart. Yeah. I definitely have a hard time owning that term mm. um, because my experience is different, that I didn't have my culture stripped away. I watched it. I didn't have, you know, to stay there for 12 years. I've seen it. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to stay there overnight. I heard what happened, you know, and uh, I, I, my experience is very different. But I, I, I look at myself as impacted because my father was certainly you know, impacted and many of my friends and, uh, fam, other family and myself. Right? Yeah. So, um, it's not to be discounted. Absolutely. Yeah. And I downplayed it for a long, long time, you know, like it's not that bad. It wasn't as bad as the others, yeah. you know, and it's amazing what we can tell ourselves. Like I never, I'd never do that to you. I'd never get you to downplay it. I'd never get you to put your mm-hmm. that much crap under a tarp and, you know, and, yeah. and just try and move on and yeah. get on with your life. And, yeah. But we never are as kind to ourselves as we are to others. We never consider ourselves usually, yeah. you know, um, in, a, in a world of being humble and, mm. and having pride, you want to consider yourself, um, you know, as much as others, but in the land of ego and vanity, it can get away from you and you mm. consider yourself more than others. Yeah. I mean, you consider yourself first and then you get that, Emotional logic of entitlement, entitlement, and you know, and all those things. Ah, they deserve that, or I deserve this. Or, yeah. You, know, you start to get that skewed vision, right? Tell, tell me about today, like the NNBC hosting a day like this for Métis people. It's been a big day. Yeah, tell me about that. Um, it's uh, it's my second event, really, with MNBC. Um, I was offered the opportunity to travel to Edmonton to go to Muscochise and to St. Anne's, um, Muscochise to see the Pope's apology. Um, and I didn't really know what I was going to get from it because I kind of already moved on. I'd already kind of had my own level of acceptance and forgiveness. Um, I realized how much other people needed it. Mm. And I'm definitely a people watcher mm. and uh, I'm a people pleaser. I like to help. Um, so I tried to push myself to go to observe and I knew there'd be a piece of something there that would help my puzzle. Cause I really am a weird puzzle of things. Mm. Right. And I figured there's a piece there that's got to fit. Mm. And, uh, so I went, um, I tried to think of somebody that would come because I was offered to bring some support with me and uh, I was going to fly out and I don't like flying. I guess mm. that's a little bit of trust issues again, control issues. Mm. I definitely have dealt those in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can't drive, I'm not going to go. Yeah. Right. So um, it's, uh, it was like, so I drove out and uh, I got there and I kind of walked up and um the first person I bumped into at the counter was uh, um, my president of my local Métis association. So came over, gave me a big hug. So glad you're here. So glad oh. you're here. She knew my story yeah. in a nutshell. And uh, she knew that there was probably something there for me. Mm. And I didn't know how I was going to be received because yeah. I, I mean, look at me, right? So, you know, I don't present as a survivor. Mm. Um but, uh, I, you know, even though I had much of the same experience, um, I, I don't have that automatic credibility mm-hmm. or often relatability until I start to speak and share. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, it was fantastic. It was one of the mm. best things I did to help my healing. Mm. Um, I'd already kind of given up on not needing the Pope's apology. Like I said, I'd come to my own grips with what was. And um, I um, got a lot out of it. What mm. I got out of it was hope, I think. Yeah, that other people, I hoped that other people would get what they needed from it so they could move on. Um, I think the, the apology was weak, but the experience was very, very strong. Okay. Yeah, and uh, for many people, or most people. And um, from there, um, I realized that I wanted to do this one when I got the invitation. So when I got to the front counter mm. yesterday, I mm. walked up. There's my president to my local association yeah. again. I said, geez, I can't get rid of you at all. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, nope, you know it. Well, give me a big hug and so glad you're here. And mm. um, yeah, so it's been, um, and I did recognize a few people from, from Edmonton and starting to recognize some of the MNBC staff mm -hmm. and starting to find that acceptance, uh, not only with them, but with myself. It's amazing. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah, your story you. today. Very courageous of you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it takes a lot from us for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, I hope uh, one day to join you at yeah. the uh, Métis Sweat Lodge. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, I would absolutely love that. Yeah, that. I'm working on it this winter. Okay, I want to have it implemented by spring. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I want to help uh, everybody with it as much as I can. Okay. So I've been kind of battling my own uh, self-esteem and my own worth. Uh, am I absolutely okay to be a young elder and sweat lodge keeper, you know, like I'm just a guy, yeah. I drink beer on the weekends yeah. and, you know, I ride motorcycle yeah. and, yeah. um, but I really am trying to, you know, do better. I, I live completely off grid. Uh, I have ducks, chickens, uh, a pig named Laverne, mm -hmm. uh, a pair of goats named Bert and Ernie. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I collect rainwater. Yeah. I live just on firewood heat uh, through a wood stove. Uh, keep a big pot on the on the stove all winter, so yeah. I got hot water on demand. Um, anything big, I need hot water tank or yeah. to vacuum or something. I plug. I run the generator yeah, yeah. Uh, for a few minutes, but uh, for the most part, it's you know, I got a windmill. I do wind power. Wow. Um, do, you know, I, I, I live a, la a life of having to work for things. So when I sit down at the end of the day, I, my heart is so full of gratitude, oh. so full of self-confidence and self-esteem yes. from providing for myself and my family and, and having that self-sustainability mm -hmm. and living on reserve, um, on private native land, on reserve family land. I have the opportunity to kind of govern myself mm. and be my own man. Truly, you yeah. know, I, I'm so blessed. Yeah. I'm so absolutely blessed. I recognize it every minute of the day. And I have that choice to either, you know, honor it or just kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. But I live by it and uh, I make sure that uh, I keep it in check that way that it's, um, always, always a reminder yeah. that I want to, you know, I want to reflect that, look what I've done, yeah. you know, and look what I have ahead of me. And I, I'm walking back and forth to the chicken coop. I'm looking yeah. at the mountains. I'm going out to the goats. I'm looking yeah. at the water and yeah. it's just, yes, it's so good for spirit to awesome. have, to have that, uh, yeah. that mindfulness. And yeah. that's something I've never had my whole life yeah. because I've always been worried about the future or, mm. or kind of trying to diffuse the past yeah. without the skills yeah 
So I couldn't really live in the moment. It was, you know, I, I, people always said, you look so distracted. I'd say, sorry, I didn't hear anything you said, you know, and and I realized I tried to pin that on my jobs of having, being a maintenance manager of these two hospitals, having 10,000 things in the back of my mind, the gutters up here in room 604 where the bed scraped the wall and, you know, like on and on and on. So I realized once I took time off work and it wasn't that anymore, my my schedule came down. I realized it was deeper and needed to cultivate it up and cleaned up. So thank you for sharing yeah. so much of your journey with us. And oh, you're welcome. I'm sure a lot yeah. of people can I, I hope it, um, yeah. some it helps somebody in the future. And no, I'm sure it has I hope they take a piece of uh, my hard times to help them have less hard times. That's my hope. Thank you so much. So yeah, thank you. This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast presented by TELUS, and I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to Métis Nation BC and TELUS for making this possible, with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis News at MétisPodcastSeries.ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you, Marcy, for listening. Mm-hmm.